Welcome to Word Matters, presented by the Christian Standard Bible. Word Matters is a podcast dedicated to helping Christians understand some of the most confusing and controversial passages of the Bible. Now join the conversation with your hosts, Trevin Wax and Brandon Smith. Did you believe the Pseudepigrapha was inspired by God, and should we believe these extra-biblical writings are authoritative for the church today? That is the question that we are going to ask on this episode of Word Matters. I'm Brandon Smith, alongside my co-host Trevin Wax, as always, and uh, today we're going to look at something a little bit different than what we normally talk about, Trevin. That's right. Um, we're looking at uh, the second to the last book of the Bible, a short one-chapter letter called Jude, and it's a it's a letter that raises some in- interesting questions about the the relationship of Scripture to uh, extra-biblical sources, uh, sources that predate the New Testament. So Jude makes mention of, and he even quotes in—really, it's in a way that seems approving and in a way that he finds authoritative—he quotes these writings that are not accepted by Jews or Christians as part of the canonical Scriptures. So to to make clear, this is not Jude quoting from the Apocrypha. Sometimes I hear hear people say that yeah, yeah. Jude quotes from the Apocrypha. That's the those are writings that Roman Catholics believe to be inspired scripture, but Protestants don't. Um, no, these are writings that we call the pseudepigrapha. Uh, they aren't considered authoritative scripture by any branch of the Christian Church. Yeah, these are these are Jewish writings, basically within two hundred years of Jesus's life that yes. attribute. Uh, books to Moses or other prophets right. that were written by, obviously, somebody else. Okay, so let's jump in here. We're going to read the whole passage uh, in Jude, and then uh, Trevin will kind of split it up here, and we'll both call out the places where the pseudepigrapha yes. is mentioned or quoted. Uh, so let's start with verse 5 uh, in the CSB. Now, I want to remind you, although you came to know all these things once for all, that Jesus saved a people out of Egypt and later destroyed those who did not believe, and the angels who did not keep their own position but abandoned their proper dwelling, He has kept in eternal chains in deep darkness for the judgment on the great day. Likewise, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns committed sexual immorality and perversions and serve as an example by undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. In the same way, these people, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and slander glorious ones. Okay, so here's the first mention of uh, an account from an extra-biblical source. Verse uh, 9. Yet when Michael the archangel was disputing with the devil in an argument about Moses' body, he did not dare utter a slanderous condemnation against him, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme anything they do not understand. And they do understand by instinct, like irrational animals, by these things they are destroyed. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, have plunged into Balaam's error for profit, and have perished in Korah's rebellion. Okay, continuing on, Jude writes this. He says, These people are dangerous reefs at your love feasts as they eat with you without reverence. They are shepherds who only look after themselves. They are waterless clouds carried along by winds, trees in late autumn, fruitless, twice dead and uprooted. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shameful deeds, wandering stars for whom the blackness of darkness is reserved forever. And here's a second reference. Here's where actually Jude quotes from the pseudepigrapha. It was about these that Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, Look, the Lord comes with tens of thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly concerning all the ungodly acts that they have done in an ungodly way and concerning all the harsh things ungodly sinners have said against him. These people are discontented grumblers, living according to their desires. Their mouths utter arrogant words, flattering people for their own advantage. Okay, so the problem here... um 
obviously, is that there's no prophecy of Enoch in the Old Testament. And the only time that uh, Michael, the archangel, is mentioned in Scripture uh, is in Daniel 10.13, and then Revelation also refers to it, probably actually quoting or referring to Daniel 10. Uh, this is not connected to Moses or a dispute over Moses' body in Scripture, though, as it is here in Jude. Uh, so Jude is using sources outside the Old Testament, obviously. So the question is, um, what did Jude think of these writings? Did he see them as inspired? Uh, what should we think about them? Should we see them as inspired? Should we uh, see them as authoritative? That's the question we've got to work out here. Yeah, so these are the questions that we're dealing specifically with, with that we're going to deal with specifically here today. And I I mean, again, we say this all the time, but there's, pro- there's several things that we just read that we could do other episodes on. Right. right, that are challenging. Uh, uh, I mean, another episode, or we could probably do two episodes uh, in the future on w- what it means that Michael disputed with the devil over the body of Moses, right. right? Or Enoch's prophecy, how that plays a role in Jude's argument. So the specifics of what we're talking about, Michael, uh, the archangel Michael, mm-hmm. uh, Enoch, those are questions we can defer to to a later date. Today, we're specifically looking at Jude's perspective on the pseudepigraphal works and what our view of those writings should be as well. Yeah, and the story about Michael the archangel and Moses' body is not preserved anywhere, even though I think we could have an episode where we said, does the devil own Moses? And people would download it like crazy, right? That'd probably. Be, that'd be, that'd be, save uh, it, save it. That'd draw them in. Uh, it probably, though, came probably from a book uh, called The Assumption of Moses, may have come from The Testament of Moses. Uh, not really sure. But either way, we d- definitely don't have the original version of the story preserved anywhere. That's right. Now, we do, though, have the writing called First Enoch, which is not canonical. Um, still, the the fact that Jude would cite these works brings up the question, so what did he think about them? Right. Like, what was his view of them? Um, so let's let's lay out the different perspectives. So the, the first perspective here is that Jude believed these texts were inspired by God. Jude saw these works as scriptural. Clement of Alexandria was a church father who took this position. So did Tertullian. Uh, they saw Jude's letter as inspired, and since it quotes other works as inspired, they said, well, we probably ought to consider those works as inspired too. Uh, interestingly enough, Jerome took the same position that Jude saw this as inspired, but then he worked the other way and believed, well, we shouldn't have Jude in the New Testament <laughs> because of that. So in other words, J- Jerome agreed, uh, agreed with Clement and Tertullian that Jude was quoting these sources as, as if they were inspired, but whereas Clement and Tertullian thought Jude was right. Jerome thought Jude was wrong, and that's why he made the case that Jude shouldn't be in the New Testament as canonical scripture at all. So so that's the first view. Jude saw these works as inspired by God. That's semi-consistent, I guess, for Jerome in one sense. Based yeah, on no, it is. A very different but, conclusion, but yeah. Yeah, yeah so, um, so throughout most history, people haven't been persuaded by this first view, though. So we've got a couple of early church fathers who believe this. Uh, but another view... Um, is that Jude knew of an oral tradition from the original Enoch, uh, who we meet in Genesis. Obviously, we, we see his, his character there. And uh, that original quote from, from the true Enoch eventually made its way into First Enoch, which is not a canonical book, but is, is a, um, a book that's referred to quite often uh, in the early church and, and other places. So, so the quote is historically accurate all the way back to Genesis, but that doesn't mean that First Enoch is inspired by Scripture. Uh, so similar to this, people would say that the story about you know, the archangel Michael is also rooted in history. So he didn't see it. Jude didn't see it as legend or something unhistorical. But that doesn't mean that we should draw the conclusion that uh, the whole book is inspired or uninspired based on one citation, right? Um, after all, Paul cited Greek poets and sayings and didn't suggest that those were authoritative writings, used them basically as illustrations. Uh, so the case here basically is that Jude wasn't saying the assumption of Moses or wherever this came from was canonical. 
he just believed that the story was true and a good illustration of the truth that he was trying to get across. Okay, so then there's a third view that's similar to the second. Um, it's that that Jude wasn't quoting an actual oral citation from the real Enoch. He was quoting the book of Enoch as it was in circulation in his day. So in other words, he, he just quoted something from a non-canonical book because he believed that portion was true, not because he thought, well, here's a real oracle from the historical Enoch. In other right. words, he's saying, I believe that what that prophecy, what that that um, book says, uh, what is in that, included in that prophecy is is true. So according to this line of thought, we just accept the quotes as they are. We don't assume that the whole books would be part of Scripture. Uh, he thought that part was true, was genuine prophecy. A prophecy can come from God and yet still not be part of canonical Scripture. Um, he may have referred to Enoch because his adversaries here thought highly of that work, so kind of to, you know, turn Enoch's words against them. Yeah. Uh, but in any case, he was quoting from the book of First Enoch, which purported to come from the Enoch in Genesis, you know, because it says seventh from, from Adam, not necessarily claiming that, oh, I believe the original Enoch said these words, but to say, hey, th this word from the book that you like is true, regardless of the source. That's why I'm quoting them, and I'm kind of turning the tables. Yeah, so, so, Brandon, what's your view on it? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to take the third view uh, primarily. Um, I think Jew may have considered it inspired. He may have considered it to be a true story. Uh, we have to we have to remember that when Jude wrote this, uh, the canon wasn't formed yet. There were still a lot of questions about uh, what was canonical, what wasn't. Um, a great example of this is the Shepherd of Hermas, an apocalyptic uh, work that was sure. popular uh, around that time. You know, there were if you if you go through the early church, you had uh, people like Clement of Alexandria, Irenaeus saying this is inspired. You know, Shepherd of Hermas is inspired. Uh, you had the Didache um, too. Yeah, right. The Didache has it. The Moratorium canon. That, yeah. It's in there. Uh, you have Athanasius basically saying this is helpful for churches. It should be read in churches, used as a catechism, but it's not inspired by God. So I could see Jude viewing this the same way in some sense, but he, he could believe it's actually inspired by God, even if he's wrong. Um, or he could think it's an historical account and, and still be quoting it. Um, also, I think even bigger than that, obviously, he's using it as an illustration. So regardless of what you think about why he used it, whether he thinks it was inspired or not, he's using it as an illustration to make a point. I think that the point that you mentioned in, in the third the third view as well about um, he may have seen his audience as taking Enoch as authoritative or, or seeing that as a, as a type of illustration that would land really well with them. I think the same way Paul, you know, in Acts 17, he goes up and he quotes the Greek philosophers to the pagans. You know, they see this as authoritative. Let me show it to you and then show you what the real truth is from it. So I'm going to go that way. Third view, Jude may have seen it as inspired, may have seen it as historical. Uh, either way, he was using it as an illustration. But you're, but you're kind of, in some sense, though, for, for our own purposes, you're saying it doesn't matter because it became part of inspired scripture. It, it is inspired scripture yeah, from yeah. Jude. Right. So, yeah. So we wouldn't say uh, because it's in there, it's not inspired. That line's not inspired. Right, right. We would say as the canon is closed, we believe it's inspired by God, just like Paul's words are inspired, even if he's quoting somebody outside of Scripture. Okay, uh, Jude can be doing the same thing for sure. Yeah. So, so my take on this, I, I just, I think we, I think this is a, a problem that we have that um, because we've got to keep in mind that questions of the canon, you know, what should be considered Scripture, what shouldn't be, these weren't being asked by the church when Jude was writing this. Right. The, the Jewish debates about the canon that were going on at that time, they didn't concern this particular issue. So, I think it's clear that Jude saw the Old Testament as inspired and authoritative. He also probably saw the tradition of the apostles, which at this point was most likely oral only. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He would have seen that as authoritative for believers as well. And I think it, he he likely saw what he quoted here as authoritative, but but it would be wrong to read into that that somehow that Jude is making a case for canonization for these works. He's not even you know, thinking. That's a category I, that he's not I even just, thinking about. Yeah, right. I don't think he's trying to say, oh, all these works are inspired scripture. It would be like me 
quoting from something true in culture or something true in church history without even giving countenance to the idea that, well, everything in that work should now be put in the Bible, right. you know? Um, so, so the way I see this, the early church in accepting Jude was accepting the teaching of Jude here without endorsing everything or saying everything was inspired that he was he was pulling from. Yeah. That's the way I would take it. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So, so based on that, how would you preach or teach this passage? Well, I wouldn't spend an entire sermon talking about whether or not this is <laughs> why not? this should be included in scripture. Um, I would say though, I mean, obviously you want to you want to make the point that Jude is making, or that you at least think he's making, which is about the seriousness of God's judgment, about apostasy, yes. about um, following God and being obedient to God. I mean, that's the main point of what Jude's saying. Yeah. Uh, he's using these things as illustrations to make that point. Although I would do, I mean, I've preached Acts seventeen before. Um, I've not preached this passage before, but in Acts seventeen, I'll definitely mention. Hey, Paul is quoting something that's not biblical here. He's quoting something outside of Scripture, but he's using it as an illustration to show something that's true. And so I think Jude is doing the same thing there. So I'm going to focus on what Jude is actually trying to say, and I would probably bring up those stories because people are going to, you know, people who know their Bibles well at all would be like, I don't, I've never I've heard never of this. What is yeah. this? Yeah, the, the devil and Michael and, and Moses's body. Yeah, and it's right. Kind of interesting. Okay, so you got to mention it. You can't just leave it hanging. Oh, sure, there, sure. So I, I'm going to take a similar tack on that. I definitely push the the point of the passage, which is not a point about the pseudepigrapha, right? So right. you want to cause everyone's eyes glaze over, go into, you know, the history of the pseudepigrapha and the difference between that and the <laughs> apocrypha and all that. I will say this. Um, I have found that people in our congregations are very curious about how we got the Bible. Yeah. They, they, they see documentaries on TV. They see, you know, they may come across, it seems like every Easter there's news articles and magazines about, you know, lost books of the Bible that have shown up or books, Gnostic those, Gospels. Yeah. And why did these Gospels make it in our Bible and these other ones did not? Most of the time when, when I mean, when people are, those sensational stories about lost books of the Bible and whatnot, are, it's, a, it's a big nothing burger. Right. When you actually get into the texts themselves and you compare them to biblical to what to what is in the canon it's it's astounding the difference uh between these works and so but but they, they make headlines all the time so i have found though that people are very interested yeah. in that question i i wouldn't use my sunday morning to do a deep dive into that but you know some you know a special sunday evening service or wednesday night kind of a thing uh you know in a life group there's other places where you may want to, you know, create a PowerPoint and walk people through, yeah. hey, how did we get the books of the Bible? Why are these books in here and other ones aren't? You know, help us understand what, you know, what, why the the view of inspired scripture that we have, where it came from. Yeah. Um, I have found that people are very interested in that because they believe the Bible and they want to have some some good answers when they have questions about about the that that topic. Yeah, that's really helpful. I teach, a, we do a thing at our church every summer called uh, City Project, which is for college students. They go through, you, you've taught at it before, actually, yep, you know exactly right. what it is. And we teach uh, theology and Bible and culture and different things like that. They do internships at the church, et cetera. Uh, but one of the things I teach on is a six-hour uh, story of the Bible, basically yep. how we got the Bible, why the Bible's authoritative, and here's kind of the big story of it. And that always tends to be the one that, that people come back to and say, that was one of my favorite things that you taught. Uh, because I do think you're right. I think there's so many questions. You know, Bart Ehrman has how many New York Times bestsellers that talk about the Bible. He has one book called Forged, that literally the Bible is forged, you know. Um, and so people see this all over the place. Like you said, Discovery Channel, uh, Time Magazine, it's everywhere. Man, before people of the book, I mean, we take that uh, those accusations and those things seriously. Yeah, we and so, and 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 one of the great things about Jude is that it begins the conversation about those books, even though I don't think Jude was intending to. Yeah, right. it, it does. And so, I think we should we should take advantage of that when we can help the church. All right, Trevin. Well, thanks for always as hopping on and co-hosting. Thank you all for listening. We will see you next time. Thanks for listening. 
Word Matters has been presented by the Christian Standard Bible, a translation that is faithful to the original languages, but clear for today's audience. Find out more at csbible.com.